before I get started tonight, I just need to clarify something. Vic, you may not have been someone else's first choice for tonight, but you were God's first choice. And I don't know about anyone else's barrel, but you are not at the bottom of God's barrel. So there. <laughs> Do it. That's the only copy I have. Check with Mary Darby. She has, she has those other copies. She may have your copy. He's special. He gets notes. <laughs> I know we've prayed, but let's do it just one more time because I love to talk to Jesus. Heavenly Father, what a mighty God you are. We are grateful tonight for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and births us into your glorious kingdom. We thank you tonight, Lord God, that we do have blessed assurance we belong to you and that you are faithful to keep those things which we commit to you. And even when we are faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Holy Spirit, we know you're here. I'm asking you, Father, to take every veil from off our minds and our hearts, anything that would prevent us from hearing the word that you have for us tonight. Because, Father, more than anything, we want the name of Jesus glorified, not just in this moment, but we want the name of Jesus glorified in the transforming work of your spirit in our lives so that we really can be light and salt into a world that needs you. So thank you, Jesus. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles with me again to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And I'm going to read, I'm going to start with verse 12 and read all the way down to verse 30. Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and maybe some of your translations say praetorium, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and much more bold to speak the word without fear, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have an ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is Paul the Apostle. This, is, this man in modern times is a great man. He leaves philosophers somewhat bumfuzzled because of his great arguments and apologetics. Those who translate Greek and do New Testament exegesis still are endeavoring to try to understand all that Paul tried to communicate. This man was brilliant. He was articulate. He was well known by both the Jews and the Christians and even everyone in between. This man is not saying, I am in prison and it's a shame and I shouldn't be here. This man is saying, I am in prison, but don't, don't be upset. Look at what I'm going through and know this, it is for the furtherance of the gospel. What an attitude, what a perspective to have. The first thing he says is, I want you to know brethren. Paul also uses this language in Colossians 2. It's passionate language. I want you to know. I will do anything I need to do to clarify this and to make it plain to you. I want you to know. This is a desire. This is not just, I, I think for a moment, I'd like for you to know about this. It's not just a passing event. I want you to know because this information that I have for you, this thing that I want you to know can transform your life. This thing that I want you to know will change your perspective. Anybody in here need a perspective change? Do you know that God is more interested in changing you than he is in changing your situation? God is more interested in adjusting your perspective than he is getting you out of this momentary conflict that you find yourself in. I want you to know. But I think arguing from absence we should look at what he doesn't want them to know. He doesn't want them to know his pain level. He doesn't say, I want you to know how bad I'm suffering. I want you to know that I'm at a level nine pain. <laughs> he doesn't want them to know his pain level. He doesn't want them to know if he's been beaten or if he's been maltreated. That's not of interest to Paul. That's not what he wants them to know. He doesn't want them to know what he's missing in life. I have gotten to watch several news uh, presentations on especially men who've been put into prison, wrongly accused, and only now do we have the scientific ability to use DNA to find out that they really were not the ones guilty of that crime. So after 10, 20, 30 years of being wrongly accused and placed in prison, these oftentimes men are set free and they're interviewed. They become overnight celebrities. And most consistently when they are asked, what do you think about this? And they'll just shake their heads and go, I missed so much of life. 
I spent my life in prison for a crime that I did not commit. I don't know about you, but every fiber in my being just cringes over the injustice of such an event. But Paul is not bemoaning what he's missed in life. He's not saying, I've been in this prison for two weeks, and that's two weeks out of my life. I'll never get back again. He's not complaining about what he's missed in life. He's not talking about how bad the conditions are. He's not saying things like, there's no air conditioning in this place. I just about froze last night because there's no heat and they didn't give out complimentary blankets. He's not bemoaning the horrible conditions that he might have been in. He didn't want them to know how badly he's being treated. He doesn't want them to know that people are making fun of him. He doesn't want them to know that he's probably being bullied and threatened. Those are not the things he wants them to know. And the reasons those are not the things he wanted them to know is because those are not the things important to Paul. Let that sink in. He's not interested in what's happening to him and to his flesh. He's interested and passionate about one thing and one thing only, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's passionate and careful about one thing, and that is making Jesus known in every breath that he takes and every word that he speaks. Paul is full throttle, on fire, sold out, nothing held back, on fire for the things of God's kingdom. We wonder sometimes why we don't see the things in our life and ministry that Paul saw and experienced in his life and ministry. I think if we look at our level of commitment and compare it to Paul's level of commitment, most of us will be found wanting. Most of us will find that our perspective is a little out of skew when we lay it down and compare it to Paul. Now, I know that our ultimate, the one that we are ultimately to look up to is Jesus Christ. But even Paul said, look at me. Let my life be as an example. And as I follow Jesus, you follow me. And I think that we can look at this man and go, you know what? When I compare my life to what this man's going through, when I compare where I am in the things of Jesus with where he is, I am seriously lacking. And there's something missing. There's some missing commitment in my life. What does he want them to know? He wants them to know it's all good. And he's not just making that up. He's not like some parent who's sweating bullets because of their pain going, I'm fine. It's all good. It really was with Paul all good. It's all good. I am at peace. I see this situation clearly. I have been brought into the counsel of God, and he has shown me his plans and his purposes for this moment. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in an uncomfortable situation, I don't seek the counsel of God as an immediate default. When I find myself in an unpleasant circumstance or situation, I usually start complaining. I am no better most of the time than the children of Israel going through the wilderness. It's dry and hot out here. Where's the air conditioner? Where's Whataburger? There's no good Mexican food in this place. We find ourselves bemoaning the luxuries and the comforts and the things that we're familiar with, and we fail to see God's bigger purpose in things. 
We say, I belong to Jesus. I have been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am not my own. And that is the truth. But somewhere between what we say and the way we live our lives, there is a disconnect. Because we say that we belong to Jesus, and then when he begins to exert his lordship in our life and doesn't get the democratic vote from us, we begin to wail and complain and moan. It is a theocracy, and Jesus is king, and he doesn't need our vote because we belong to him. I don't have children. I have puppies. And when it's time to take them to the groomers, I do, I do not go, Jakey, Levi, want to go to the groomers? No, I don't do that because if they could understand me, they would take off running in the opposite direction. No, they belong to me. When it's time for them to go to the groomers, I do not need their permission. They get in the car and we go to the groomers. Church, we belong to Jesus. And when he wants to use us, if he wants to do something in our lives, if he wants to shake things up in our lives, he does not need our permission. And we must learn that whatever situation we find ourselves in, to not look around, but to look up and say, I praise you, Jesus. We may not praise him for the moment. We may not praise him for the circumstance and the situation, but he's not asking us to like it. He's just asking us to praise him. And you can praise God in situations that are unpleasant. In 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter, the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant and God wants it back. So a great deal of maladies befall the Philistines and they finally go, oh, I think maybe God wants the Ark of the Covenant back in Israel. So they build a new cart that's never been tested before. They take cows that have calves that have never been yoked before and they hook it to that cart and have them take off. And without any leadership, those cows go right to Israel with their calves crying after them. And 1 Samuel chapter 6 says, and they went, speaking of the cows, they went lowing all the way. There are times when I have had God ask things of me that I did not want to do. Move to South Carolina was one of them. And I said, God, I don't want to do it. And his word to me was, go, low if you must, but go. And there are things that God takes all of us through, low if you must, because obedience is what's important. Paul did not talk about what was going on in his life as far as his personal circumstances and situations, because those things were not important to him. What he did talk about, what he did want the people at Philippi to know is that God has a bigger purpose in this moment than me. Sometimes we think those unpleasant moments in our life are about us, about our comfort, about getting what we want, about accomplishing our plans and our desires. I believe that through prayer and worship, God wants to lift us up out of our moment and allow us to see his bigger plan for the moment because it may have absolutely nothing to do with you. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. I went to Romania several years ago and taught a class on philosophy of religion. It was an awesome week. It was wonderful. I got to preach in a number of churches and God moved and it was just absolutely marvelous. I love Romania. And even to this day, it's been 15 years since I've been there. I love Romania and there's a part of my heart that's very passionate for that country. 
But I felt all the way on the plane coming back to the U.S., I felt like there was something else that it just wasn't finished, that, that it was a wonderful week. God moved. He used me. And there were just great things that took place, but something was missing. And I landed in the U.S., I think it was either 24 or 48 hours later, I'm at a salon on Colleyville Highway. I think it was called The Garden back then. It may have changed names now. And I was getting my nails done. And the lady there was talking to me and she said, so how did your trip to Romania go? And I was talking about it and she says, you know what? We just got a new nail tech in and she's from Romania. And so she goes and gets this nail tech and brings her over to where I am. And we begin to talk and I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. And I, I mean, she didn't accept Christ at that moment, but she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It got planted into her life. And I left that salon today and I asked myself that day and asked myself the question, could it be that God in his infinite wisdom and mercy sent me from Colleyville, Texas, all the way to Romania and brought me back again to share the gospel with that one woman? And I know the answer to that question. Sometimes we don't see the bigger plan. What we think are the plans and purposes of God may just be something that we contracted in our own mind when really God has something much bigger for that moment. I know I often hear young women from Teen Challenge talk about how difficult it is in that moment and how, you know, they're having to share bathrooms and they're having to share bedrooms and they're having to share meals and they're having to share space and they're separated from their families and from their children. And I know it's a tough moment, but it's bigger than that. It's a moment about transforming their lives. It's a moment about touching and transforming those young women so that when they leave that place, they can then go and be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone else. Paul says, I want you to know that I am in prison, but it's actually working for the better of the gospel. He's not talking about how it's hurting him, how it's affecting him emotionally. He's not talking about how bad the food is. He's talking about the furtherance of the gospel. He says, it's all good and I'm at peace. He says, my circumstances, my happenings, listen to the heart of this man's confession, what looks like an unjust, unfair imprisonment. Paul is in prison, not because he's killed someone. He's in prison, not because he's taken something that did not belong to him. He's in prison, not because he's violated another human being. He is in prison because he has preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's in prison because he has fulfilled the call of God on his life. He says, even though this might look like an unjust imprisonment, this is nothing more than a vehicle for God to use to accomplish his plans and his purposes. I can't stand still anymore. (laughs) Think about this. Paul is saying what might look like to someone else out there as a horrific event I see something bigger than this. God's using this to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And so while someone else might look at, oh, Paul's in prison. He must have done something. And and you know, people, Christians will act like that. Let, Let me tell you the language we use. Well, he lost his job and there must be a reason for it somewhere. Well, she left him. Wonder what he did to cause that. Those kids... They're just scoundrels. Somehow I know their parents messed up. 
We say nasty, horrible, mean things like that about each other. We don't know. And we don't know but what God is using those situations and circumstances to further the gospel. We need to withhold our judgment and instead offer up prayers for those individuals who are going through difficult moments. It would have been better to pray for Paul that God would strengthen him and encourage him and provide for him everything that he needs than it would be to bring accusations against him because to bring accusations against him is to bring accusations against the gospel that he preaches. We don't know what that person is going through. We don't know what it took for them to get to that place. And Paul is saying, this may look like an unjust, horrific act of the judicial system, but really, this is God at work. Who wants to go to prison? I'm claustrophobic, I really don't wanna go. I've been to the federal prison to minister, and when they close that door and it clinks behind me, it takes a gracious act of the Spirit of God to hold me together. No one wants to be in prison. But you know, every one of us knows what it's like to be under what I call a divine confinement. Now, a divine confinement might look like this. Age can be a divine confinement. Either you're too young, And you don't have enough sense and experience to do all that's in your heart. You're too old and you've got the experience and the wisdom, but your body won't cooperate. (laughs) We either do not have enough money and we're constrained because we can't go and do the things that we would really desire to do because we don't have the money to get there. I know people who feel like being single is a divine constraint because the things that they want to do and the things that are in their heart involve having a husband or a wife. I know people who are married who feel like they're being constrained because the things that they want to do and the things that are in their heart, their, their husband or their wife is holding them back. Sometimes people are constrained by their health. What they want to do, their body just will not cooperate with them. I think of Ray Snow, Sunday after Sunday, coming to church with that walker because his hip is hurting and he can't get the hip replaced because other things are going on. And yet he keeps on praising Jesus. And yet he keeps on declaring the lordship and the goodness of the God that he serves. But there are people who are restrained or constrained because of their physical condition. We are all constrained or restrained by something. And I think that we have gotten, as a people, so focused on what we can't do that we have failed to look up and say, Father, in this moment, what can I do? You don't need a lot of physical strength to offer up prayers of intercession. You don't need a lot of motion to be able to worship the Lord. You don't need a lot of money to open your Bible and become a student of God's Word. You don't need to be married or to be single to love the people that are around you. Whatever you find, whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, therewith be content. Look for God in your moment instead of trying to get rid of your moment to find what you think is God. Because I tell you this, whether it's job or jobless, married or single, rich or poor, 
in prison or free. God is in your moment. And it's up to you to see him, to look for him, and to realize that wherever you are, whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, God is there and he has a plan for that moment. I am so frustrated with an evangelical culture that talks constantly about finding the will of God for my life. What is this stuff about my life? Find the will of God and get your life in it. Because it's not about you, it's about him. We have, you have heard me say this so many times, but I'm gonna keep on saying it because it's just screaming within me. We have made the things of God and the kingdom of God about us. And it's not about us, it's about him. And that's what Paul has trying to communicate here to the people at Philippi. It's not about me being in prison. It's not about bars and chains and food and accommodations. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I may be bound, but the gospel is not bound. There are at least two things in this world that can never be bound. One is the spirit of God and the other one is the word of God. And those seem to be two things that we are least concerned about in this 21st century culture. I want you to go with me through scripture and let's look at some people who knew some confinement. There was Abraham. God told him he was going to be the father of a great nation. And here he is. He's 99 years old and he doesn't have a son yet. I would say he's a little bit restrained. The way of women has left his wife and yet God says she's going to bear a son. And he's restrained. And in that moment, he has to do something that is completely amazing. He has to trust God. And scripture says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited into his account as righteousness. And he became known as the father of faith. Let's look at Jacob. He loved Rachel, but found himself tricked into marrying Leah. So he is restrained by Laban, his father-in-law, for a number of years until he earns Rachel, and then he can leave. But during that time, God transforms him or gets him to a place where he is ready for transformation. He has to, there's, he's a trickster and a manipulator, but he's a pale comparison to his father-in-law Laban. And sometimes for God to deliver us from something, he has to put us in the room with it. Do you guys still love me after that? So Jacob has to basically live with someone who has perfected manipulation and made an art out of it. And it prepares his heart for the transforming touch of God at Bethel. Look at Moses, or let's back up. Let's look at Joseph. Joseph has visions and dreams, and God shows him that his mom and his dad and his brothers are going to bow down before him, and he makes the mistake of sharing that dream with them, and it causes problems. There is no rivalry like sibling rivalry. It causes Joseph to be sold into slavery and then to find himself in prison for at least 14 years. And during that 14 years, God doesn't give him a shortcut out. This man's done nothing wrong. He maybe bragged about a dream a little bit, but that's really about the worst thing you can say about Joseph. He finds himself thrown into prison because he refuses to 
capitulate his morals and his integrity to sleep with Potiphar's wife. So here's another man that's finding himself in prison for doing the right thing. And for years, he's in this prison. For years, he has nothing but the Lord. And during those years, God trains and sharpens that young man. Then we have Moses. 40 years in the desert, God has him leading sheep because he needs to learn to lead sheep because there will come a day when God says, now I want you to lead my people. And the things that he learned leading sheep will translate over into his leadership of the people of God. It wasn't wasted. These moments that we despise, these moments in our lives that sometimes last for years, when we look back on them, we go, oh, that was awful. You have the wrong perspective because everything in your life, every moment in your life is being used by God to transform you into the image of his own son to bring you into a place of understanding him, into a place to where you no longer are subject to circumstances and situations, but you hear his voice and you do what he has said and not what the circumstances and situations demand that you do. How many of us would love to say, I am free from external circumstances and situations compelling me to do this or to do that. I hear the voice of my father and that's the voice that I obey. You do not learn that voice. You do not learn obedience without suffering. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Jesus, the sinless, spotless son of God, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. If the Son of God learns obedience through suffering, how much more do we? If the Son of God, through suffering, had obedience established in his life, how much more us? So let me ask you a question. What happens to a generation of Christians that have been raised to believe that Christians do not have to suffer? You show me a man or a woman who has never gone through anything, no adversity, no conflict, no suffering, and I will show you someone that has no depth of character. In our humanity, it requires those things for character to be developed in us. So the very thing that we have tried to avoid so much in our life could be the very thing that God desires to use to make us more like his son and to further the gospel. So there's Moses, then there's Isaiah. Isaiah is in a position to see the Lord because he's lost King Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It was in a low, hurting, painful moment of his life that he was put into a position to where he could see what the Lord wanted to say to him. Then let's look at the Lord Jesus. As I've already said, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Let's look at Lazarus and his sisters. They love Jesus. They're intimate friends with Jesus. Lazarus dies. And they send word, Lord, Lazarus, whom you love, listen to the language, Jesus, Lazarus, and we know you love him. And if you do love him, you'll show up fast. Lazarus, whom you love, is sick nigh unto death. And what does Jesus do? Even though he's only a few hours away from Lazarus, he tarries right where he is. Have you ever had Jesus tarry? 
until what you thought all hope was gone? Have you ever had Jesus delay his, what you thought was a delay of his response until you thought that there was no hope? But Jesus shows up right on time. And they're basically, don't bother, Lord. He's already dead. He stinks by now. There's so much imagery there that we could stay there and talk about Lazarus for a really long time. But Jesus said, do you believe that I am the resurrection? And Martha says, I believe that in the last day, Lord, you'll do this and you'll do that. And Jesus says, move that stone. And they move the stone and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus and his family were restrained or constrained by their own physical limitations. But let me tell you this. You may spend 14 years of your life, like Joseph, under the restraint of God, but in one year, God can make up for all of those years. In one moment, he can make up for all those years that you were held back. I know that it's popular in our culture to go, okay, after 50, it's all downhill from there. If you're not established by the time you're 50, it's not going to happen. It's sort of like you reach the top at 50 and everything else is a slide down. Moses didn't start until he was 80. We start when God says start. One year with the power, presence, and anointing of Jesus Christ is better than 49 years without it. Or 100 years without it. There are some of you in this place right now and you've got the mentality, I am coasting now. I've got this going on and I've got that going on. I am retired and I am, oh, I am over. I am just coasting now. There is no coasting in the kingdom of God. Not to the man or the woman that is fully obedient to Jesus. Even if you're restrained physically, restrained because of children, restrained because of circumstances and situations, there is something that you can do for the kingdom of God. God has not forgotten you. He has not taken his hand off of you. He is still at work in you to form you into the image of his own son. This moment does not define you, but it does prepare you. All the people in scripture that did great things for God had some obstacle that they had to overcome. Whether it was Paul in prison, John on the island of Patmos, everyone had something that acted as a restraint or constraint on their life. But the thing that separated them from everyone else is the fact that they did not focus on what they could not do. They focused on the one in whom they had placed their hope and trust. And what did he have for them in that moment? What was his plan for their lives in that moment? I know that some of you feel like you are in a place to where you can't offer God anything. But that is the wrong perspective. Every one of us in this place, we have something to offer to the Lord. Firstly, it's us. Here I am, Lord. Do with me as you will. Show me something. Show me someone. Paul is in prison and he's saying, God has used this to further the gospel. Guards in the Roman world, there were four guards and they were changed every four hours, according to Gordon Fee in his commentary on the book of Philippians. So four guards every four hours, you do the math. I promise you this, Paul shared Jesus Christ with every one of them. If they had to stand there and make sure he didn't go anywhere, he would preach to the wall if they wouldn't let him preach to them. 
And he shared Christ Jesus with them. And he saw that as an opportunity. He even thought, and correctly so, that God had given him that moment just to share Jesus Christ with those guards. It is believed that much of Europe was evangelized because those guards came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then when they went back to Europe, took that faith with them. We don't know the effect and the strength. We don't know but what we might even be the result of Paul's imprisonment in Philippi. Think about that. We might be sitting here worshiping Jesus tonight because Paul said, oh, don't worry about me. I want you to know that this is an imprisonment, but it's furthering the gospel. Not furthering the gospel in that moment, but furthering the gospel till Jesus comes. Oh, if we could just get a vision, if we could just understand that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works in us a far more eternal weight and glory, the things that we are going through in just this moment, as painful as they may be, it might be working through us the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone that we're not even aware of, to someone that we're not even thinking about. There was a young lady, and if I mentioned her by name, some of you would know her, but she was one of my kids in children's church. She was struggling in her faith with Jesus Christ. Mom and dad both were committed Christians, and there were some things going on behind the scenes that we really didn't know about, but it was causing her to struggle with her faith, and she had decided, I'll give them the right answer. I'll look like I'm doing what they want me to do, but inside I've made up my mind this Christianity stuff is not for me because I don't think it's real. I have one of the old Bethesda vans. It's filled up with kids. There are about 15 to 18 kids between 8 and 12 years old in that van, just imagine. And I'm driving down 820 close to roof snow at high traffic time on a Friday. And some guy just blatantly pulls out in front of me. I have to pretty much slam on my brakes so that I don't hit him. Fortunately, all the kids are buckled up and no one was hurt. And I just intuitively stretched out my hand toward that car. And I said, Father, in the name of Jesus, minister to that person and let them know your peace and your love and your joy in this moment. Now, I remember that because that was a stretch for me because that's really not what I wanted to say. <laughs> she came back to me as a young woman in her early 20s, and she told me that that was a turning point in her life because she saw Christianity in action in that moment. I didn't think about it. I just did what I felt compelled by the Lord to do in that moment, and it had an effect on someone's life. That's just one instance out of thousands for all of our lives. How many of us have rejected moments that were destined and ordained by God because they were not convenient nor comfortable, and we ended up missing an opportunity to further the gospel? That's just my introduction. Goodness. <laughs> you guys brought dinner, right? The purpose of his momentary pain. We all have momentary pain. Some of us, that moment lasts for a really long time. For some of us, the moment is short. But the pain is momentary. The purpose of Paul's pain 
was that the gospel is going to be preached to the royal guards, all of them, and it's going to increase courage among other Christians to preach the gospel. When they see Paul suffer well, it's going to encourage them and cause them to not be afraid of suffering. He embraces the cross of Jesus Christ with great humility, considering his suffering an honor, a place where he could identify with Jesus. His suffering was not a burden. His suffering was an honor. Jesus, thank you that you are allowing this, me this moment and I have this opportunity to identify with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more important to Paul than his personal desires, his ambitions, and his comfort. And I want to leave you with this thought tonight. If suffering for righteousness sake is a component to furthering the gospel. And when you read the New Testament, the New Testament certainly declares that it is. But if we believe that suffering for righteousness sake is a component to the furthering of the gospel, is it any wonder that in 21st century Western American culture, the gospel hasn't gone very far in the last 40 years? We don't have to go look for suffering. If I gave you the microphone, at different levels, every one of us in this room could talk about something that's hurting us right now, where we're being constrained or restrained. We may not be in a prison of bars, but we are all constrained by something or someone. Our challenge tonight is not to go looking for suffering. Our challenge is to look at the suffering that we're already in and ask the question, Jesus, how can the gospel be furthered in my life through this circumstance and this situation? How can I identify with you in this moment and your gospel be furthered? I think that in the next decade, church as we know it is going to have to change. And I'm not talking about Bethesda in particular. I'm talking about church at large. This concept of come and get blessed is going to have to be transformed to come and hear the word of the Lord and be shaken to the core of your being by the Spirit. Come and sense the presence of God's Spirit to the extent that you are convicted of your sin and you're ready to be changed by the touch of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm hungry for that. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Father, tonight, whatever light afflictions we might be experiencing, we ask you, Father, to give us a vision, to give us an understanding that it is but for a moment, and it's working for us a far greater weight in glory. Jesus, help us to see like you see. Help us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Father, we are asking you to gently and lovingly deliver us from this self-centered, self-motivated, self-seeking culture that we're a part of. We're not asking you to deliver us from that culture, but to deliver us from these things so that we might be a witness of your gospel to a people who desperately need Jesus. What a great God you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In the most excellent name of Jesus, amen.